So way back in July of 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in Enfield, Connecticut, not far from here, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And for the last 250 plus years, it has been a galvanizing piece of Christian history. The sermon continues to be read, studied, criticized, praised, held up as the seminal moment in the American colony's involvement in the Great Awakening, and condemned as false theology. Like anything, though, that can capture the imagination for well over a quarter of a millennium, it is not so easily categorized as its proponents or opponents would want to believe. For me personally, I think the oversimplification of the sermon and the consequential placement of it in one camp or another, those who love it, those who hate it, has probably done more to determine people's opinions about it than the sermon itself. Sort of like the Bible. A lot of people have opinions on the Bible. Very few of them have ever read the Bible. But here's the thing. I'm not diving into the sermon today. So I am risking the oversimplifying it oversimplifying of it as well. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Do not be swayed about this sermon by the few things I say about it this morning. All right? Maybe someday we could use it as a text for a sermon, and that would be fun to dive into it. But today, I simply want to draw attention to it by way of contrasting the father that we find in the parable of the prodigal son and the God presented by Edwards in a very small portion of his sermon. Okay, that's why I'm using the sermon. Some of you perhaps have heard of the sermon, right? Or at least you've heard the title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I do find certain things about Edwards' effort commendable, especially these three facts. One, he was preaching to the religious elite. This is important to understand. To those in the church who believed their own self-righteousness is what appeased God. All right? And that's something we've been studying. That's why we're in the book of Galatians, looking at appeasement theology, right? Looking deep into our souls and trying to purge as much of this appeasement theology out of us as we can, letting the Holy Spirit make us realize, no, God loves us. Okay? So he was actually preaching to the religious elite, the the self-righteous hypocrites of his day. And he wasn't preaching to the more traditional targets of modern-day evangelists, you know, the down-and-out, the, the sinners, quote-unquote. Two, he definitely pointed to a form of mercy and grace in this sermon. I, I think it was arbitrary and exclusive grace, but it was still there. And three, he was correct in that we are sinners and we are in the hands of God, okay? But what I reject about Edward's portrayal of God is that God is violently angry with us. I find it very inconsistent with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And though Edward cites a number of scripture passages to defend his theses of God's anger with us, there are even more passages to refute it. One of my personal favorites is from the relatively minor prophet Joel, which you should all be past now. There's only four weeks left in reading through the Bible. So if you're not past Joel, you have some cramming to do. All right? But Joel's book could be a study in why God could and even should hate us and be angry with us, okay? But here's the thing. 
right in the midst of all these reasons that God could hate us, it says this. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Oh, so beautiful. Does that sound like an angry God dangling sinners over the fires of hell? And here's the thing. That is the entire Old Testament narrative when you read it closely. Yes, God rants and raves and rages about his children's betrayal and rejection. Who, who doesn't rage when they're hurting, right? But he always relents. When you read the Old Testament closely, he relents because he died before the foundations of the world for us. And he loves us. But here's my real departure from Edwards in this renowned sermon of his. Is the parable that we've been studying. The prodigal son. All right? This is a direct quote, and this is a tiny little bit. Do not let this inform your opinion of the entire sermon if you've never read it. This is just one paragraph. But I take issue with this paragraph. Here is a paragraph from this sermon. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his sight, eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. That could sway people. No wonder there's a great awakening. Can you imagine sitting hearing that? Yeah, it is. Scary. I mean, think about that. Think about what that would do and especially because humanity has bought into the myth of needing to appease God since the beginning of time, right? So now you have a religious leader telling you, you better appease God because he hates your guts. And if you don't. And sadly, I think there is a real hangover from this idea that God really hates us. In all of our own lives, sitting right here, we're still dealing with that hangover. And we've been taking Alka-Seltzer for years, and it's not going away. Because we're afraid that it's true. And that if we don't act just right, God's not going to do anything for us. Fear. Remember, we talked about this. We've been looking at the older son. Fear that God doesn't love us. Whatever our God is changes things. Well, thank God Jesus said this. For God so loved the world that he died for us. And Paul put that in huge context. While we were yet sinners, loves us as we are, not as we should be, and that Jesus told this parable. I don't think there is anything in common between Edward's assertion that God abhors us and this father. And Jesus told this parable. So I'm going to go with Jesus. We have been studying this for the last 10 weeks I hope you've enjoyed it. I'm a little sad that it's ending today, but it's, I love, love, love this parable. And what we have repeatedly learned, I hope, for those of us that have been here, is that if any father, any father had the right and reason to hate his sons and be angry with his sons and punish his sons, it was this dad, right? So let's do a quick recap. A father at this time and place would have been expected to, at a minimum, literally kick the younger son literally all the way out of the house for asking for his inheritance before the father was dead, number one. Then we saw it would have been expected for the father to remain aloof 
and reject the prodigal and cast him out when he tried to return home. Okay? Then when the older son refused to come into the party, Bailey explained to us, remember, that a traditional Middle Eastern father in the past would immediately order the servants to overpower the disobedient son in the courtyard and drag him by force to a side room and lock him up. A grim-faced father would then proceed with the banquet. After the guests had left, the eldest son would be brought out, held down by the servants and beaten. That sounds like Edward's God. That's a very human God. It's so easy to identify human gods. They look like us. But this father did everything he shouldn't have done. And we also saw, the last two weeks especially, we have studied that not only did the older son not come into the party, but when the father, <clears throat> in sacrificial and unconditional love, came out to him, the older son exploded in a fury of self-righteous anger and accusations. And in front of the many people watching, he treated the father with the utmost disrespect, disgust, and belittling. And so, there was not a person there in that time and place who would not have been waiting for the father to at last punish this insolent and disobedient son and to maybe take it upon himself to thrash the kid to within inches of his life. But instead of holding him with hatred over the open mouths of devouring demons, the father remains as full of grace and compassion and love and long-suffering as his, his nature. We are sinners in the hands of a God who loves us so much he holds us away from the fires of hell. That's the image. So, here we go. These are the last words of the parable. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I do not think it is coincidence that Jesus placed the final words of this parable in the mouth of the father. For the sons have taught us a lot about humanity, but they have taught us very little about God. The father, on the other hand, has revealed much to us about the very essence of God. And I think we decided last week that this should have been called the parable of the forever loving and full of grace father. And I think this final scene really supports that. So let's dive into it. He starts off with my son. Get ready for this. Remember when the older son launched into his anthem of the self-righteous hypocrite? Remember the son launched into this and he didn't even address the father's father? He didn't say father first. The, old, the younger son at least called him father, right? but the, old, the older son did not address him as father. And we remember that this was an incredible insult in this culture. This was a complete violation of relationship to not address your father by father. Okay, well, notice immediately that the father, okay, remains committed to the demands of relationship even with a disobedient son who's rejecting him. But it gets more beautiful than that. Are you ready? See, this is, where the, this is where English lets us down when we read scripture. The word here is T-E-K-N-O-N, and it means my beloved boy. The rest of the entire story, the original word is H-U-I-O-S, and it just means son. Yet here, in the face of extreme rejection, the father uses the most tender expression to reach out to his son. <sighs> Angry? Maybe. But as Bailey says, as always, the anger of the father is reprocessed into grace at great cost. 
The father knows the older son is as lost as his self-righteousness, in his self-righteousness, as the younger son was in his prodigalness. And the father remains as committed to finding him as he was to finding the younger son. God. And so he continues, he says, all that I have is yours. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. Remember when the older son was complaining about slaving for the father? Remember in that self-righteous speech? Well, here the father gently reminds him that he, the son, really owns everything. So he's only been slaving for himself. The father calmly exposes the, younger, the older son's accusations as groundless and based on fear and self-holiness and envy. And that's what God's anger at his lost children looks like. He gets his point across, of course, but in a way that leaves the door open for relationship. And isn't that exactly what the cross screams? The cross screams God crying out to us, no matter how much you hate me, even if you kill me, I will still love you and come looking for you and welcome you home if you let me find you. And that's exactly what the prophet knew all those years ago. For the cross has been from the foundations of the world. And if the Holy Spirit was inspiring the ancient writers, then they were being inspired with the big story, which is God loves us and love wins always. And then Jesus does what he is an absolute master of. In all of his stories, if you read them closely and look for this, this is what Jesus, Jesus does. So he ends right now. This brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He puts the audience on stage. This is one of the most brilliant parts of storytelling. And Jesus was a master of it. He inserts his audience directly into the performance as the antagonist of the story, as the older brother. And he asks the audience, what about you? Will you come in? Remember, he was telling this parable to the religious leaders who were accusing him of receiving sinners. The older brother accusing the father. In this final climactic scene, he exposes their own hypocrisy and of not rejoicing for the dead being raised and the lost being found. Now I'm going to read an extended quote by Bailey, our Middle Eastern scholar that we've been relying on, because I think Bailey does a brilliant, brilliant job of explaining this final scene much better than I ever could, so I just want to use his language. He expands the Father's speech, okay, and he places it in the mouth of Jesus himself, talking to the religious leaders, if we're brave enough, talking even to us. <clears throat> you accuse me of welcoming sinners and eating with them. You are correct. This is precisely what I do. But I do not do it at night behind the door. I do it in broad daylight and before assembled guests. I search out sinners that I may by any means convince them to come in and eat with me. But my dear friends, do you not understand that this costly offer of love is made for outcasts and incasts, for runaways and stay-at-homes, for prodigals and older sons, for sinners and the Pharisees, for tax collectors and for scribes? In the parable, the actions of the father in the courtyard are my actions. You are the older son. Costly love was offered the prodigal. Even more costly love is offered to the older son. 
In spite of your hostility to me and my actions, I love you and urge you to sit and eat with me. When I sit and eat with sinners, we are not celebrating their sin, but my costly love. That same costly love is now offered to you. My banquet table is spread. If you accept, then the banquet is an occasion of even greater joy. I seek not only them, but also you. Come, be reconciled to your brother. Accept the love I offer. I know that you are offended at my table fellowship with sinners, but you don't understand, my dear friends, that if I do not sit and eat with sinners, then I cannot sit and eat with you. And that is the ultimate message that every church in this world should be preaching. We have lost that in our appeasement theology and in our exclusive theology in the idea that we're special. If God doesn't love sinners, then he doesn't love us. Period. But thank God he does. So, does the older son come in? I don't know. I don't know. I think Jesus purposely leaves it like that. My suspicion is he didn't. He doesn't seem interested in a relationship based on love. He's too afraid. He wants something different. He wants law. He wants servanthood. He wants transaction. He wants rewards. Oswald Chambers has insight into why the older brother might never have come in. This is a very convicting quote from people like me. We would feel much happier in our backslidden condition if only we knew it had altered God towards us. But we know that immediately when we do come back, we will find him the same. And this is one of the things that keeps men from coming back. If God would only be angry and demand an apology, it would be a gratification to our pride. When we have done wrong, we like to be lashed for it. God never lashes. And at the risk of sounding a little um, sacrilegious, this is the problem with dogs. You treat them like crap and they still love you. And that just makes you more angry. Right? Sometimes I'll blow up my dog and she just comes back, I love you. Like, oh, just bite me or something so I can feel better about it. God never lashes. He never lashes. But here's the thing. I'm not sure what the older son does is the issue. It's a story. I think it was left open because the issue is, what will we do? What will we do? And before you say, oh, I'm already in, stop. What will we do? Will we come in as humbled, wayward children in desperate need of Father God's unconditional love and limitless grace offered to all? Or are we going to stay outside in the loneliness of our self-righteousness? Our need to appease? Our narrow theologies? And our exclusive doctrinal understandings protesting the ludicrousness of grace? See, understand here, and this is huge for us to understand, we have a choice. While I believe God looks far different than Edward's God, Grace still carries with it judgment. Ultimately, this parable, the seminal parable on grace, is in the final analysis a judgment parable. 
as my favorite theologian Capon wrote, it proclaims clearly that grace operates only by raising the dead. Those who think they can make their lives the basis of their acceptance by God need not apply. But it proclaims just as clearly that the judgment finally pronounced will be based solely on our acceptance or rejection of our resurrection from the dead. Nobody will be kicked out for having a rotten life because nobody there will have any life but the life of Jesus. God will say to everybody, you were dead and are alive again. You were lost and are found. Put on a party hat and step inside. If at that happy point, some dumbbell wants to try proving he really isn't dead, well, there is such a place for those people too. God thinks of everything. The point is, God loves us and wants us at the party. Why would we let our own self-righteousness, our own need to appease, or anything else, keep us outside? Or keep anyone else outside? That is the parable of the loving Father.